You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT, Davis, California. the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore coming to you from 95.7 FM, KDRT, LP, Low Power Radio Station, broadcasting from Davis, California. As usual, let's begin with the weather. North wind came in yesterday, May 6th, and if you're a Sacramento Valley resident, you know that the north wind means warmer temperatures ahead when it happens during the late spring and summer and fall. And in in accordance with that, it looks like we're going up to a high, possibly some record temperatures for the time of year tomorrow, Friday. Today's temperature is going to be a high of 92. Uh, Thursday night is going to be 56 degrees. And Friday, National Weather Service is telling us it's going to be 96 degrees, possibly closer to 100 in some parts of the Sacramento Valley. Friday night, dropping down to 57, cooling off pretty rapidly. In fact, very dramatically. Saturday will be 92. Saturday night will be 56 degrees. Sunday, cooling to 84 and only partly sunny. Here's the fun one. Sunday night, partly cloudy, 52. Monday, slight chance of showers. Mostly sunny with a high near 78. Monday night, a chance of showers, partly cloudy with a low around 54. Tuesday, a chance of showers, partly sunny with a high near 72. So we're going to drop from 96 to 98 degrees all the way down to a high of 72 in just a matter of days. A little bit concerned about that chance of showers over about a two-day period there because you know that's going to lead to fungus problems. I suspect if you're near the orchards in the outlying parts of town, you'll hear the orchard operators out spraying fungicide possibly in the early evening, possibly during the night as they as those weather systems approach because they're concerned about fungus diseases attacking the tree crops. Things to be aware of, and we can certainly talk about those problems in your garden. For the most part, home gardeners, you should just be aware of these disease problems. Watch for them. In the case of oh, tomatoes or vegetables, you might want to do a little careful strategic pruning most of the other diseases, I find myself chatting with customers when they bring symptoms or samples or pictures into the store and describing the life cycle. And unfortunately, that's pretty much as far as we go. We're not going to spray a sycamore tree for anthracnose blight because there's no way to do it. It doesn't really hurt the tree all that much, but it's rather unsightly. And since we had rain a couple of weeks ago, we've been seeing a lot of anthracnose on sycamores and modesto ash and some of the others causing a lot of leaf drop. Uh, the good part of this north wind we've been getting and the cycle that we tend to get into is that when that comes in, it's dry and it's warm, and so that tends to put a stop to the disease cycle. So we expect we'll see a little bit of rain and we'll see um, some disease symptoms cropping up, and then probably we'll bump back up into the higher temperatures and the low humidity and the disease cycle will end. Uh, on most of the trees and things that we're concerned about. Uh, Daniel Swain, who writes the Great Weather West blog and posts on Twitter, does tell us that there is some respite during, uh, despite record 
near record heat across much of California over the next few days, he says. There are signs of a wetter, cooler interlude in mid-May over Northern California. Well, this will probably be the last of the season. It may help temporarily tamp down the presently above-average wildfire risk. So we've got a hot spell for a day or two, back into a cool pattern, and that's the nature of summer here in the Sacramento Valley. The UC Davis Arboretum encompasses 100 acres of gardens for active recreation, teaching, research, and peaceful contemplation. The Arboretum offers guided tours, educational programs, performance spaces, and exhibits for water-wise gardening. UC Davis Arboretum gardens are open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. For more information, you can call 530-752-4800, or better at the moment, visit arboretum.ucdavis.edu. I want to mention one of the upcoming events at the Arboretum. All the outdoor sales and such have been canceled, but they do have a social media event that they'd like to bring to your attention. Uh, it's running currently April 29th through May 31st. Uh, it's called May Madness. And you can go onto their Facebook page and fill out a bracket. Okay. Basketball fans know what's going on here. Then you can vote, along with the rest of the public, on which California native plants should win in a social media showdown throughout the month of May. You download, fill out, and share your May Madness brackets. Vote for your favorites on the Arboretum and Public Garden Facebook page and Instagram stories throughout the month. So you can't go to any events there. There's no sales happening, but the Arboretum wants to keep you engaged. It's really simple. Go to the UC Davis Arboretum Facebook page and you can have fun with the California Native Plant Showdown May Madness. Choose your brackets now. We'll be reporting back later on who wins. So looking at the mailbag, we've got a great note from a listener in the East Coast. Uh, Raymond says, Don and Lois emailing from Philadelphia in the middle of the city. I live in a row townhouse and grow veg and flowers on my roof decks in containers. Even though we are 7B growth zone, my plants on the roof receive 12 to 14 hours full sun and grow react except for the humidity and rain in a similar way to what you describe in your climate. The average temperature through July, August, and early September is about 93 degrees on the roof daily. I grow watermelon, okra, peppers, lots of tomatoes, zinnias, cosmos, lavenders, all in containers. All do very well in my microclimate. Listen to the show religiously. Have been through all the podcasts at least twice. Back to 2008. We appreciate your service, especially in the current environment. Please keep it going. My plants and I desperately need it. And a note to Lois. I believe you were raised a Quaker. I attended the oldest Quaker school in the nation through high school, as does my son. Uh, the William Penn Charter School. We will continue to hold both of you in the light in the Quaker tradition. Keep it coming. We hear you out there, even from afar. Raymond in Philadelphia. Thank you very much. And that's a great note because it really highlights the importance of microclimates. We talk about it here all the time at my retail nursery when people come in wanting to grow what you might call USDA Zone 10 plants. You know, the hibiscus, the bougainvilleas, mandevillas, which are incredibly popular these days, and lots and lots of other things that in a normal winter here in USDA Zone 9, basically I think we're 9B, um, would freeze. But they found the one spot where they can get them through the winter. 
you have a much more extreme microclimate there, which is that you're taking advantage of the elevation being up above the canopy. And that 93 degrees comports with our average high temperature here in the Sacramento Valley. Um, July and August are both around 93 and we're at least 90 uh, mid-June and through much of September is our average high temperature. And it's very common all the way into October for us to have temperatures in the 90 degree range. In fact, the, the latest date of 100 degree plus weather here in the Sacramento Valley uh, is in the second week of October. The big difference, of course, is our humidity is very low. So we don't deal with the fungus problems that you folks have back there. But you've really illustrated the, the benefits of looking around your house and yard as you begin to garden and figuring out where you'll get the maximum hours of sun. Uh, if you're looking to grow those things that are a little too tender, a place where there'll be some extra protection in the wintertime. At my house, it's the southeast corner where I have clustered now a jacaranda and a bougainvillea and uh, my brugmansia, which is the angel's trumpet, is nearby. Those are all things that are on the edge of hardiness here in the Sacramento Valley and freeze back, but will recover more quickly and be protected somewhat from extreme cold because of the place right near the house that I've found. Up on the roof is a great place to garden. Um, many people do find quickly, as landscape architects and designers try to do rooftop gardens, it's a much more extreme environment than they're accustomed to. I consulted a couple of years ago, just by email, just a casual back and forth, someone who was installing small trees up on a rooftop. And as they described the environment, I quickly concluded that it was going to be very akin to a desert. The humidity, of course, is going to be different if you're on the East Coast, but the high temperatures that reflected off of the roofing materials uh, can make an enormous difference, both positive and negative. And the positive part is your ability to grow those heat-loving summer vegetables and the fruit trees that want the extra, extra sunlight and heat to give you sugar in the fruit. The downside is the more extreme watering conditions. And so my strongest suggestion in that particular situation was they look for the largest volume of soil container they possibly could so they'd be able to give it a reasonable amount of water and have the tree get through those extremes of temperature and humidity. Ultimately, I think they settled on, I really suggested that they look into Mediterranean type plants just because of how extreme the environment was. And they ended up focusing on olive trees and some of the others that can give that really classic Mediterranean look. So look at your microclimate and it can make a big difference. Also, uh, I love the list because those are classic Sacramento Valley plants, things that love our heat. Watermelon is grown locally by major seed companies. They grow it here to grow seed to ship all over the world. Okra loves the heat here in the Sacramento Valley. Peppers, of course, we have a very long growing season. So even though we don't want to plant them here until now, early to mid-May and all the way into June or even July, we can continue to grow them uh, and harvest from them all the way into November because we have such a long, warm growing season and you have that advantage where you are as well. And of course, zinnias really fell out of favor for many years because of the powdery mildew problem. But new varieties have come in that are quite resistant to mildew. They love heat. They really shouldn't even go in here until the nights are consistently the mid-50s. Uh, Mid-May and all the way into mid-July, great times for planting zinnias in the Sacramento Valley and any place else that it's just plain hot. That's what they really, really like. And you mentioned cosmos and lavender, also great choices in this area. Lavender, uh, for you folks back east, 
You might want to look into a variety that was introduced by Peace Tree Farms back there called Phenomenal. Phenomenal was introduced for its greater cold tolerance and the fact that it has a very uniform growth habit, nice, compact, dense growth habit, and, and the usual beautiful but rather vivid purple flowers on this particular variety. So if you're, lavender is something we can grow out here, you know, just absurdly easily because it loves our hot, dry climate. I've probably had 30 different varieties of lavender at any given time on my property. Uh, they're, they're plants that I can water thoroughly once a month, once established. They fit beautifully in landscapes with California native plants, even though they aren't because they can take our rainfall cycles and our, our summer heat so well. But in rainier climates, they can be a challenge. And in colder climates, they can be a challenge. So for those of you wanting to grow lavender in a rainier summer climate, make sure that it's elevated in the soil so that water drains away from the crown. A container, of course, is a great way to go if it's a big enough container. And then look for varieties like this one called Phenomenal that have greater cold tolerance. Anyway, great to hear from you, Raymond. Thank you very much for the note. Uh, Danielle in Riverside, which is an inland valley in Southern California, writes again, I want to thank you both very much for making the effort to continue the show from your home. I'm very grateful to continue hearing the show, especially during this time. I also really appreciate your continued advice and answers to my many questions or information on starting a compost pile, which I inquired about a couple of weeks ago. It was so helpful. Uh, so here are my new questions. Can you explain when to stop watering onions and when to know what is the best time to harvest them? Also, do you have any storage tips? Okay, we'll start with that one first. Um, we cut back on the watering on onions in May, and we do that to try to force the plant to think it's time to go into the bulb stage of dormancy, which is what we're growing it for. Um, a simple technique, and I've just went through this with another customer who had heard something from an old timer, and this is one of these old timer bits of advice, is you want to start bending over the tops of the onions when it starts to feel like summer is nearly here. I think that was kind of the way we ended up putting it in our conversation back and forth. Do you go by the calendar? Do you go by the number of weeks since you planted? No, it needs to feel like summer is on its way because that's the, the trigger to the plant, whether it's a day length or a temperature reaction. Uh, there's a lot of different onion varieties and they vary. So some of you are listening in places where you push this whole process back further into the summer. You didn't plant until spring. You're probably not going to start this until... June or July, perhaps later. Maybe you could let me know. But here, we plant onions, here in California in general, we plant onions in the fall. We plant them in November when they come in bare root, or you plant little six-packs or seedlings out in late October or November. They grow through the winter. They grow very vigorously in the late winter and early spring. And then as they get the urge to flower, you want them instead to go dormant and form a bulb. And the simple way to do that is to start cutting back on the watering. Usually here we, we start cutting back end of April. We water about half as often, but we don't want to desiccate them. We don't want to stunt the plants. And then we take something like a, a leaf rake, or he heard of uh, using a blanket or, or some kind of tarp, and you pull it over the tops and you bend them over, not to break them, but to just kind of crimp them. You're trying to kind of fold them over to somewhat break up the flow of water from the roots up to the top. And what that does is it triggers the bulb to start shedding leaves and start forcing energy and storage, really storage of starches and sugars, which is what you're growing them for, down into the bulb. And you don't stop watering completely unless you're really in a hurry. 
because you want the plant to shed its roots gradually. So you water half as often and you bend them over a bit. And the next time you water, you bend them over a little bit more until you've more or less folded them over, not broken them, but crimped them over. And about two weeks into that process, you'll notice they start going into a dormant phase. And you can poke around. It's okay to dig down. By the way, you can dig them up and use them. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You can use them even in the green form. But uh, you, can, you can poke around and see how things are going because varieties differ as to how quickly they form the bulbs and uh, how quickly they're ready for you to harvest. Another technique I've heard is to take a spading fork as you're doing this, you know, in, in conjunction with doing this and loosen the soil around the roots. All that really does is break up some of the roots and hasten the process. So you're just, just trying to force the bulb into dormancy. If you do nothing, it will happen automatically, but many varieties will flower. And when they flower, they end up with a hollow core and they don't store as well. So we're trying to get them to form the bulb without flowering if possible. I can tell you that in the years I've been selling onions, I get complaints about Italian red torpedo flowering and being hollow and not storing as well, much more consistently than other varieties. So the different varieties that are out there, and there are hundreds and hundreds of varieties available, um, they'll vary as to how likely they are to form a bulb without trying to flower, form a bulb without a, a, a hollow core, and so forth. Some of them are better keepers, as they say in the business, than others. They're all usable. But you may decide that some of yours, which don't appear to be as firm or as, uh, as solid, um, those will be the ones you want to use first. And really the key with storage is keeping them in a relatively cool, dry place. Most people find their garage is perfectly suitable. It doesn't have to be refrigerator cool. It doesn't even have to be lower than room temperature necessarily. Best to have some good air movement. But most important is that however you store them, it's best if they aren't touching each other because you do get rot in onion bulbs. And if one rots, it spreads very rapidly to the others and pretty soon your whole bin full of onions is ruined. So it's best if you can spread them out on, on trays or racks that have air circulation underneath the bulb, at least for the initial period of storage. And most people find that they can just set them in a, you have a pantry still, some houses have pantries, uh, your garage, someplace like that, and get them a little up off the counter so that there's some air gap underneath them, preferably not touching, and they should store just fine. Generally, the sequence we use them in is red ones first because they tend not to store as well. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, Walla Wallas and yellows should keep longer. And so you can check as you're, as you're buying onions whether they're called keepers or better for storage or whether they're better for eating fresh as quickly as possible. Uh, one of the most phenomenal resources on the subject of onions is uh, Dixondale Farms down in Texas. They ship all over the country, probably all over the world, and they have a lot of information about the different types of onions that are out there and whether they're keepers or whether they're grown for size or whether they have real sweet flavor and so forth. Onions are a surprisingly complicated subject, but the idea is to get them to form a bulb, preferably without flowering. And here in the valley, and also where you are in Southern California, that process starts in the month of May. Second question, I have a few cherry trees that I'm working on turning into cherry bushes. By the way, I planted these after I heard about your warning about the cherry worms, Don, but so nonetheless, I have them, and most of them are doing good so far. They've been in the ground almost a year and look good, except two which didn't leaf out yet. I've attached some really bad pictures. Well, they were fine. The two that didn't leaf out require 500 hours, Craig's Crimson and Royal Rainier. Was I being too much of a wishful thinker with the chill hours here in Riverside? This winter, we got 350. I have other fruit trees that require 500 hours that do good here. That's why I took a chance on these trees. Thanks again for all your help, Danielle. 
Um, chilling hours on cherries are, are pretty accurate. I mean, we know that the chilling hours model has some issues in terms of not accurately describing the way we go into and come out of dormancy. Uh, we, we now talk about chilling portions uh, because the newer model takes into account the fluctuations in high temperature that are problematic during the winter, especially in Southern California, that have a tendency to undo the chilling hours. And so you'll be going along fine. This has happened in Northern California too. We have most cherries that are grown up here need about 700, 800 chilling hours. We get that. We average 800 chilling hours plus here in the Sacramento Valley and in the cherry growing region, which is not far from here. There was a year 2015, which illustrated this model complication very well. We got 800 chilling hours. We got 900 chilling hours that year, actually. But there was a spike of about three days in January when the high temperature was in the upper 70s, which happens here. And it also happens in Southern California. One of the nice things about living down there is that in the middle of January, it can be in the 70s. You can go to the beach. But uh, the effect was to undo the chilling hours. And so the chilling portions, as they call them, did not meet what the cherries needed. And the cherry crop out in the Stockton area, the Bing and the, the well-known commercial varieties, the crop was about half off. It was about 50% of normal simply because of that disruption in the chilling portions. And so I'm guessing that the varieties you chose could be problematic where you are in Southern California. You might need some of the even more low chill types that have come on the market since Craig's Crimson and Royal Rainier were introduced years ago. And there are some low chill cherries that Dave Wilson Nurseries sells. The effect of insufficient chilling is delayed foliation. One of the most common symptoms of inadequate winter chilling or incorrect winter chilling portions is delayed foliation, which is a fancy term for leafing out late. The tree isn't harmed all that much. I suppose it's stunted somewhat by it, but uh, it is a it, other trees will be leafing out. You scratch the bark, it's still green. Everything is fine, but it's simply not leafing out correctly. And then ultimately, it likely does. It probably will. So you're taking a bit of a gamble that there will be years where you'll have the tree leafing out, the tree trying to bloom, the bloom's not developing properly, pollen tubes don't develop because of the incorrect or insufficient or, or dis, um, discombobulated chilling, and the fruit doesn't set. It doesn't mean the trees aren't worth growing. It just means that your those particular varieties, in your case, there will be years where you won't have good fruit production. I do think that you've chosen well in terms of um, keeping it smaller uh, so that you can possibly manage the uh, spotted wing drosophila, which is the fruit fly that lays the eggs, that cause the worms, that have pretty much ruined cherries as backyard trees everywhere in the United States at this point. I get customers who are bound and determined to grow cherries. It's usually guys. It's usually engineers. They want to know every detail about what they would need to do. And I've gone through this with, uh, with more than one. I say buy the dwarfingest, the dwarfest variety on the dwarfingest rootstock you can. Craig's Crimson is a good one because that's what a slow-growing, somewhat dwarf cherry. The rootstock, Colt, is out there and uh, very common. Dave Wilson Nursery uses that one. And it's a dwarfing rootstock. So you put a Craig's Crimson slow-growing cherry on a dwarfing rootstock, you could actually grow it very easily, uh, keeping it under eight feet and have the branching and then the, the spurs will form and the fruit will develop on what will look like a cherry bush. And that's a great way to do it. I believe that one's also self-fruitful. So you wouldn't actually need a cross-pollinator, cross-pollinizer. Um, 
then the key would be excluding the spotted wing Drosophila. So all you've got to do, he says ironically, is get some kind of a barrier that a fruit fly can't get through. Uh, when this was tested here at the Fair Oaks Community Garden up here in Northern California in the Sacramento area, it's run managed by the Sacramento Cooperative Extension, they just built a frame around a cherry tree out of PVC, covered it with the kind of material we sell as frost blanket, uh, sometimes called floating row cover. So it's a, a gauze-like material. Now, it's pretty sturdy, but you do have to figure out a way to secure it around the tree so that a fruit fly can't get in. The fruit flies are pretty small. They're not very bright, but they're very small, and they can get into small holes. And they did this when this spotted wing Drosophila first showed up at Sacramento. Back, oh, it's been almost eight or ten years now. And they got very good results. As long as they were able to completely secure it around the tree, they got worm-free fruit. So this has a couple of options. One with a smaller tree, like you're describing, the Craig's Crimson, on a slow rootstock, pruned properly to keep it bushy, you potentially could cover it. But you can't just throw the stuff over the tree like you might for birds. You have to literally enclose the tree. Um, so it's a little more challenging, but it's not impossible, especially if you just have the frame set up, built up around the tree and ready to go, because it only needs to cover the tree during the period of fruit ripening. Spotted wing Drosophila, the cherry vinegar fly, as it was initially called, oviposits or lays its eggs on the fruit just from the point that it starts to blush red, but especially when it is ripening red. Um, so we've found, for example, before we finally took our trees out, we could still pick cherries that were almost red, and I could look at them closely. You can see when it's oviposited. There's a little dimple on the fruit that's visible when it's oviposited on it. And I could find clean fruit and fruit that was going to be infested shortly. And, and avoid the worms in the fruit that way, though it meant we were eating our cherries slightly underripe. But more to the point, as soon as they are slightly straw-colored, is the term they use, that's when commercial growers begin the sprays to prevent the cherry vinegar fly or spotted wing drosophila. Um, and that is when you would need to cover the tree to prevent the ovipositing on the fruit. And then you take the covering off once you've harvested the fruit. For those of you that don't want to go that far, don't have a tree you can cover completely or just don't want to do all this hassle, you can actually just cover a branch. I mean, the fruit is very visible. Here in the valley, it's, uh, it's not coloring up yet, but we're very close to that. You can take that same material, the frost blanket or floating row cover, as we call it, and sort of swaddle one branch, you know, wrap it around that branch, attach it with some clothespins. Clothespins would work fine. Just folding it over in such a way that there's just no point of entry that's easy enough for a fruit fly to get into. And at least the fruit on that branch will be unaffected. For, so for, well, we've stopped selling cherry trees quite a while ago. For those of you that have them, this is one way. And we're right at the point, very nearly at the point where you'd want to start doing this. You could protect at least some of the fruit and make sure that it would be worm-free just by getting some of the, the floating row cover and covering a branch or two. It's not that difficult to do. It's very similar to the idea of uh, bagging apples to prevent the coddling moth, which, by the way, it's just about the time to do that as well. You're essentially making a barrier and uh, leaving it on at least that one part of the tree or covering the whole tree if it's small enough to do that. So I do think you can probably manage this, but I suspect that where you are, there will be years when you get fruit on your Craig's Crimson. Not so sure about that Royal Rainier. Um, but just to be sure, 
If you really want cherries, you might go to the Dave Wilson website and check out the newer low chill cherry varieties they've introduced, which are apparently very good quality fruit. Then realize you're going to take out the center, prune them back late summer pruning to control the size, keep them bushy so that you, maybe a two person job, could cover those trees to keep the worms out of the fruit. Thanks again for the note, Danielle. Always happy to hear, always glad to hear from you. You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. We have a note here from Chuang. Just recently found the podcast. Really appreciate the practical information. Thank you. We're in the process of moving into a new construction home in Southern California's Inland Empire. From what we have read, the topsoil is typically removed. Yeah. Our goal is to have a backyard orchard and a small vegetable garden. What would be your suggestions to get started on the right path so we would not have to waste time later on? Thanks. This is actually a really important question, and it's something people deal with in our area where there are new subdivisions going in. It's a region of good agricultural soils, but odd things have often been done to the soil at the time that the area was subdivided. Topsoil can be scraped off and sold for other purposes, and then when they go to build homes, they bring in fill, which may or may not be of good quality. We've seen this happen. We've seen it play out here in an area that has some of the best agricultural soil in the world, and people will go to plant in a new subdivision. Yes, you folks up in southeastern woodland, I'm talking to you. Uh, some of the area that was filled was they brought in very dense clay-type soil, and people are struggling to get things established. And this, a street over, trees do great because of the way the area was graded out at the time that the houses were built. So if I were dealing with new soil in a new subdivision, I would do a little research first to find out what kind of soil is or was prevalent in the neighborhood. I mean, that's a good starting point. Um, three Google search terms worked well to bring me bring you to the same resource that I use, the UCD Soil Web, UCD standing for UC Davis, LAWR Soil Map, LAWR is a Land, Air, and Water Resources Department. We used to call it Soil Science. Or the UCD Soil Map. Any of those Google search terms will bring you to an amazing... Um, Google Earth overlay, interface, whatever you want to call it, map where you can zoom right down in almost any part of California to your neighborhood, unless it's been heavily urbanized for a long time, and see what was there before they began the subdivision process. And that's at least a good starting point. It's just a starting point because, as mentioned, they've done some funny things to your soil. But at least you'll know if you were on a silty loam, a sandy loam, clay soil, and so forth. It requires a little technical uh, jargon. Uh, you have to wade through some of their stuff, but uh, you can get some good, a good feel for what you were beginning with. I mean, my very first garden when I was a teenager was on sandstone cliffs near UC San Diego, and uh, there was no soil per se. Uh, we had seven to ten inches of rainfall a year. It was just basically sandstone. So my father, when the house was built, brought in a foot of topsoil. That was my garden. My garden was essentially in a very large container. I didn't know that until later, that I was essentially working with a sandy topsoil fill on top of sandstone. So if I watered for 20, 25 minutes, uh, my neighbor on the next side would put his head over the fence and say, hey, your water's running off into our yard again, Don. And I'd realize that I had filled, I had saturated that one foot of soil. Uh, that was all I had to work with. By comparison here, my farm in Dixon, 
a trench was built was dug through the property for the local irrigation district that went down 16 feet they left that open one day i was able to go down in there and see that i had all the way down to the bottom of that 16 foot trench a fine silty loam without any bee zone and if you know who know your soil science know what that means i had good well-drained soil all the way down as far as they dug quite a contrast to my san diego garden so once you've looked at that map and and gotten a feel for what kind of soil was prevalent once upon a time at least in your neighborhood you can do two really simple tests one is a sort of a modified infiltration test. Take a sprinkler, put it on a hose, and run it long enough to put out an inch of water. You can measure that. You can measure it with tuna cans. We talk about this all the time because putting on an inch of water is a typical soaking for a lawn or a flower garden, and it's a good starting point for woody plants. So you measure. You set some things out there that will measure. You have three basic types of sprinklers out there that you can buy to put on the end of a hose, and they put out the water at wildly variable rates by comparison with each other. A spot sprinkler is a little one that goes on the end of the hose, makes a circular or square or rectangular pattern. You can put out an inch of water in less than 30 minutes on a small area, maybe a 10 or 15 foot by a 15 foot area. Uh, it puts it out so fast that even in good agricultural soils, it's puddling and running off well before that whole inch of water has been put out. So it's not my preferred method because it's going to make it look like your soil doesn't drain well in any event. But it's one way to get a lot of water in a small area very quickly. The other uh, well-known uh, type of sprinkler head is an impulse head. Um, first were made by the Rainbird Company, so they're the best known brand and we often use that term for all the impulse heads that are out there. You've seen those. They shoot pulses of water out for quite a distance. So you can cover a big area with a Rainbird type or impulse head has to run for a long time in order to get an inch of water. The water amount coming out of your hose is the same. It doesn't change, but the uh, square footage that you're covering with the sprinkler changes quite a bit when you're using an impulse head. I use them a lot on my farm to water big areas and to put out an inch of water with an impulse head with my water at 60 pounds of pressure takes about four hours. So it can work, but it might be an inefficient way to go in terms of this test for you. Advantage is it has a chance to soak in. Disadvantage has to run for a very long time. So my preferred method for your infiltration test is an oscillating sprinkler. Oscillating sprinklers are the kinds kids like to play in. It has a curved bar that slowly rotates back and forth and makes a square or rectangular pattern of water. And it takes roughly, on my water pressure, about two hours, a little less than two hours, to, about, to put out an inch of water. Your water pressure is going to vary. Your water line is going to vary a little bit, so you need to measure. And what I want you to be doing is seeing whether you can water an inch of water and have it soak in, or does it puddle and run off before you get to that full inch of water. It's not the end of the world if that happens. There's parts of Davis and Woodland, which are reasonably good agricultural soil, though a little heavier, more in the clay content, where it would take multiple 20-minute cycles at intervals in order to get an inch of water rather than have runoff. So that may affect how you water, but it's not the end of the world if you get puddling quickly. You just need to know that. Then after you've done that and you've had a chance for it to drain out a little bit and be something you can walk on and, and start to dig a hole, I want you to go dig a hole. And fill that hole with water and see whether the water drains out. The simple basic drainage test, time in memorials to dig a hole a couple feet across, uh, maybe a, well, not so, not that much, uh, 12 to 18 inches across, 12 to 18 inches deep, fill it with water, 
go out there and see if it drains out within 24 hours. If it drains out within 24 hours, no water standing in the hole, then you have acceptable drainage. If it drains very slowly in that time period, then you know that you're going to have to water slowly and carefully, but you still have acceptable drainage. If it doesn't drain out in 24 hours, then you do have a problem because you won't be able to plant things in that area unless you can figure out why it doesn't drain. You might have a hard pan layer below. You might simply have very, very compacted soil. So then you'll have to do a little exploration. Uh, in some situations in our area where there is no natural true hard pan, people have gone out and rented an auger, a two-person auger. It's a heavy machine, but two people can run it. And they've just taken that. It's the kind of thing you'd use to set post holes. And they've augered down and found that they get down a foot, foot and a half, two feet, and suddenly they're getting through this compacted layer. So it was simply a agricultural compaction problem. On the other hand, if you have hard pan, you don't have an easy answer there. And then finally, do a really simple soil type test. Uh, you take a sample and you shake it in a jar of water and you watch how it settles out. There are lots of great YouTube videos that you can look on for shake test for soils that'll tell you roughly the density of your soil, whether you're mostly clay, silt, or loam, and if there's any organic material which will float to the surface. At some point in this process, before you start fertilizing anything, it's probably a good idea to get a soil test done by a testing lab, or in some areas outside of California, local cooperative extension services will provide this. Um, before you apply any fertilizer other than nitrogen, it would be a good idea to get a soil test done. The only reason I would hold off a little bit on that is that it's primarily for your vegetable and fruit tree areas. You may not have defined those areas yet. You'll want to read about how to take a good sample so that you get it distributed across the whole area you're going to garden. But at some point, a soil test can be very useful. Uh, it's very likely that the shake test and the soil test, if you're listening anywhere in the arid parts of California, will tell you that your soil is almost entirely mineral with very, very low organic content. That's fine. Plants grow just great in mineral soils. But home gardeners often find the soil more workable, that seedlings will emerge better, that they'll get faster seedling growth if there's more organic content. So the soil company may recommend adding some organic material. More likely, we're going to recommend that you just put it on the surface. More about that in a moment. When you get your soil test back, I do want you to look carefully at the recommendations. And something that bothers me is that even very good soil testing services that will give you a very good analysis of your soil often give pretty much the same fertilizer recommendations to everybody, regardless of the test results. I have literally seen, this is weird but true, I have seen results that show high levels of phosphorus, and then the recommendation is that they do a 16-20-0 fertilizer, which is high in phosphorus. There would be no need for that. And uh, we've talked a lot about the overuse of phosphorus, so look at the recommendations carefully. Uh, I'm especially concerned about that particular aspect, the over-application of phosphorus in arid soil regions. It is not uncommon to see a high phosphorus test and then a recommendation for what they call a balanced fertilizer, which just honestly makes no sense. When I look at it and when people have brought me three or four tests in from the same, by the way, perfectly reputable soil company, and I see that it's basically the same recommendation, I say we have a cut and paste phenomenon. You can actually get excess levels of phosphorus and it can impact the ability of the plants to absorb other minerals. It can actually inhibit the uptake of micronutrients. So excess application of phosphorus in our region uh, side effect is often apparent iron deficiency later in the season and then you're running around trying to correct the iron when you caused the problem in the first place. 
So once you get that done, uh, the soil test done, feel free to send along your soil test results. And by the way, this goes for anybody out there. I'm always interested to look at soil test results. Just scan them, take a picture of them, send them to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We can talk about them because they're very hard for homeowners to analyze. And their recommendations are often a little curious. And so we're happy to talk about your soil test results here. Uh, we can discuss the outcomes and we can especially discuss the recommendations and how you might save a little money or be able to apply them more effectively and efficiently. It is likely, most areas, the only thing you'll need to apply is nitrogen. You, they might want you to adjust the pH. There might be some other factors, but nitrogen is the one thing that is almost always technically deficient. Plants almost always show a response to it, particularly home garden vegetables and fruit trees. And here's another odd fact. They don't actually usually test for nitrogen because it's very hard to do accurately. So that's a conversation we'll have later on, but uh, very likely that's the one thing you'll be wanting to apply. It, if it, it is very likely in arid regions such as most of our state that your soil will benefit from the addition of organic material for things like vegetables. Not necessary for trees, shrubs, perennials, that sort of thing, but for an annual flower bed and for annual summer vegetables, almost always beneficial to add some organic material. And the simple way to do that is just on the surface without tilling, just like we've described many times, just putting on a couple to several inches of compost, whatever your pocketbook will cover, and then watering really thoroughly and immediately worms and soil mycorrhiza will invade the compost, the organic material, and start doing their magic of pulling some of it down into the soil and gradually giving you better soil percolation. If your soil doesn't drain, or if it's very difficult to apply an inch of water without significant puddling or runoff, you may want to resort to raised planter beds. They shouldn't be your first answer. They should be a later possible answer because of the drawbacks we've discussed before about raised planters. They're a little harder to manage. But a raised planter can be as simple as stacking up some interlocking pavers that you buy from the local rock yard or blocks. You can actually make them from hay bales. I've seen that. Not planting in the bale, but using them to surround an area. Um, or, of course, they can be built from long-lasting wood or composite materials, which is considerably more expense. And then you're going to fill them with some kind of soil that you buy locally. And you're essentially at that point going to be treating them like large containers because you will have a totally different soil in there than what is in the rest of your yard. Very high likelihood that it'll need much more frequent watering and frequent light feeding, light feeding because it won't retain moisture and won't retain nutrients well. But it has advantages, which is that you can plant right away. Seedlings will come up more readily because you're putting in a much looser soil and so forth. However, before you go to the expense and complications of raised planter beds, you might want to assess whether you just have a problem with surface compaction. This could go all the way back to the construction process of having big equipment driving back and forth and packing down the soil in your area, especially if you have denser, silty, or clay-type soils. Oftentimes, people find they can break up the top inch of soil the first season. They can use compost and carefully timed tilling right before they plant, and they can achieve the desirable soil tilth, T-I-L-T-H, a great word, tilth, which is a term that just refers to the desirable texture of the soil. Uh, this is one mechanical disruption. We are always telling you not to till, reduce tillage, blah, 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 blah. Let's not get too dogmatic about it. Row crop farmers in this area who know what they're doing will often till and drill in seed, and they till so that the seed will emerge from lighter, looser soil. They're doing it to make a better seed bed. Uh, so we 
don't want you tilling every year. It's not necessary. But like those row crop farmers, we will sometimes break and amend just the surface just to create a better seed bed and let seedlings and annual flowers. This goes for flower beds and vegetables, not fruit trees, not woody plants, flower beds and vegetables that one time. And then subsequently, continue layering on compost each growing season and you'll find you don't feel the need to till. The, the urge will go away because the soil tilth will be where you want it to be. In general, for woody plants, trees and shrubs, whether they're fruit trees or ornamental trees, your native soil is the very best thing to plant them in. I know that sounds, many people find it hard to believe this when they're in an area with heavy soil. They shouldn't dig a hole, take that away, fill it with something good and plant in that. But that's actually the worst thing you can do because the roots, it's well known after many, many years of research, that the roots in a different soil texture will not readily penetrate into the native soil. So you end up with a tree that's not well anchored. You end up with moisture trapped around the crown because of the stuff you put in and because the soil doesn't drain well. Uh, you make a bathtub, essentially, and we know that's not desirable. So in general, your native soil is the best thing to plant them in. The thing to backfill the planting hole with is the soil that came out of it in most cases. We don't amend the holes and we don't replace the native soil with something with a different texture. We plant right in the native soil for best results. But you'll often hear that trees need good drainage. Flowering cherries, fruiting cherries, many types of trees prefer good drainage. Uh, what that means is you don't want water standing or... or uh, around the crown for significant periods of time, right against the trunk, because it can lead to crown rot. Uh, and that includes most of our fruit trees, particularly cherries, if you're still growing them. Some trees are quite tolerant of poor soil. Other trees are, are a little fussier about it. Uh, but for the trees that prefer good drainage, let's put it that way, which includes many fruit trees, if your drainage test showed slow percolation, then you may want to elevate the whole planting area. And what I mean by that is just make a mound. Take some soil and, and build it up so the water always drains away. Six inches, a foot, have an elevated area where you, where you have these trees. Now, you'll have to make a basin probably around each tree at first so that you can water it individually as the root system gets established. So you'll end up with trees six to 12 inches above the surrounding grade in an area that is graded that way for that purpose. And then those trees will have their own ring of drip emitters or their own basin so that you can give them proper watering when they're young. Ultimately, the roots will get out throughout the mound and even into nearby soil areas. But making the mound will ensure that water will percolate away from the crown of the tree when the soil is saturated. You can build up the mound with blocks or timbers, or you can just, if you have the right kind of soil, just create it by pushing dirt around. Uh, so when you see something that the tree needs good drainage, Kind of another way of saying it's prone to crown rot. And I keep mentioning cherries because they're famous for it, but it goes for some other types of trees as well. And so it might be a good idea if your soil doesn't percolate well, doesn't drain well, to elevate when you plant, elevate the region, the area where you're planting. There's a couple of resources. If you have a local cooperative extension service with your nearby college or university, they likely have information about soils in your region. And uh, they may be aware of, particularly farm advisors are very likely to be aware of, special issues you might encounter with soil pH uh, or deficiencies or excesses of particular minerals. In our region, for example, boron is a common naturally occurring mineral. Plants need boron in small amounts. The amount that we used to have in our Davis water and that is not uncommon in Davis soils was over 100 times what plants needed to the point that we would actually see boron toxicity on certain sensitive species. 
if you move to this area, your local nursery could tell you that. Master gardeners could tell you that. The cooperative extension folks and the farm advisor could tell you that. You might call the university, the department of whatever, uh, the soil science or agronomy, or you might call your local county agricultural commissioner. The reason I mention that is that that's the agency that houses and manages the logistics for the cooperative extension and the master gardeners program to some degree. It varies from one region to another. Master gardeners actually in general can be a good source of information. I'm a little less comfortable with that recommendation because the programs unfortunately vary in quality. They're county based and some of them are great and some of them are not so great. I don't want to get into particulars. We have an outstanding master gardeners program, Yolo and Solano County area, and they call on experts from UC Davis very commonly to come in and give their presentations, but it varies. So they're at least, however, supposed to be evidence-based in their training. A local master gardeners program could be a good starting point if you have the time and the inclination to go that far. It can be a fun thing to take, uh, take the classes when they resume those after the current situation is over. And uh, you'll probably enjoy it a lot. I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of master gardeners. Uh, they come into my shop and I've given presentations for our local master gardeners. And I think it's an outstanding program locally. Uh, so they can be a good source of information. And then ultimately, in terms of learning about your region, the Sunset Western Garden Book, although it is falling out of usage somewhat because of the internet, it still remains, in my opinion, the very best resource for most California gardeners to use for understanding your local climate. I think that if anybody wants to learn about gardening in California, find an edition of the Sunset Western Garden Book, and it really, in terms of this aspect, doesn't matter if it's absolutely current, and look at the maps and look at the descriptions of the sunset zones, and you'll learn about how your local climate, wherever you are, differs from the neighboring community. This is something the USDA zones don't tell you. Uh, they just tell you how cold it gets. If you're in USDA zone 9, you know, plants, you can grow these plants because of winter cold. If you're in USDA zone 10 and so forth, there simply is a winter cold designation. The sunset climate zones are much more detailed. It looks basically like they took a climate overlay of geography and topography. And uh, I can tell you that, for example, Davis is in zone 14, sunset zone 14, but Woodland, which is only 15 miles north, um, is in zone 8, and parts of Sacramento, which are just 15 miles east, are in zone 9. And I know that the difference is because of the influence of the Delta breeze, which cools us off a little more quickly here, and also moderates our winter temperatures a little bit, just a little bit, but enough to be a useful data point in terms of knowing what you can grow and what you can't. Uh, obviously, if you're living near mountains, but you're on the valley floor, you know that there's some things you can grow on the valley floor that they couldn't grow up in the mountains because it would get too cold and so forth. And the Sunset Western Garden Book Zones will give you much more detail about that. And it gives you some information about how you in your little area differ from someone as close by as perhaps 15 miles. So I would suggest a little bit of homework. Uh, looking up your soil type, a couple simple tests you can do, infiltration test, drainage test, soil type test, the jar shake test. Maybe pay at some point to have an actual soil test done, and then we can talk from there about how to improve or correct any structural drainage or nutrient problems that you find as you go through that process. Thanks for a really important question because a lot of people move into new subdivisions, encounter difficulties without doing the homework first and without doing a little bit of planning. Sometimes make mistakes buying products off the shelf 
um, because soils and fertilizers are a complicated subject. And uh, let's see if we can help you get through this without making those errors that others do. Thanks for the question. If you've got questions, if you've got soil tests, if you've got anything you'd like to talk about or have us talk about, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. All right, this last question is pretty simple. I want to grow flowers for cutting, but I'm on a budget. Anything I can plant from seed or easy starts? I've got a sunny location. Uh, I happen to be recording this from my home studio, which looks out onto the backyard, and I can see four examples of great easy cutting flowers just right from this window. I've got delphiniums in bloom, which I planted from little six-packs, little kind of seedling six-packs. You buy at garden centers. I planted them in February in large containers, and they're in full bloom right now with probably, they look like about 20 spikes of blooms, white, pink, blue, purple, all on uh, vigorous plants that have been growing to about four feet tall because I use the dwarf delphiniums. I can see regular old status, the perennial form, which you can do from seed, but that one's probably easiest to buy young plants in four inch pots and they last for years and take a full sun location with no problem anywhere in, in the West. Uh, they will die in the winter in cold climates, but this particular type is quite hardy in sunset zones 8, 9, 14 to 24 and USDA zones 9 and 10. And the other thing I see is a couple of the herbaceous salvia, salvias. And when I say herbaceous, I mean the kinds that don't form a shrub. They may get big, but they don't make a woody plant. They're a soft plant with long spikes of bloom. These are typically forms of salvia guaranitica, sometimes called the anascented sage. And there's a couple of others out there that are great for cutting as well. Salvia farinacea, usually sold as Victoria blue, which you can grow from seed or buy as young starts and some other types that you'll find in garden centers anytime in the spring and summer. But there are several other things. I'll go ahead and throw in Alstromeria, the Peruvian lily, which you see in a lot of bouquets. Florist shops absolutely love them. Uh, it's very easy to grow. You don't grow it from seed typically. Although, Park Seed Company, for many years, has sold a strain, as we call it, a seed strain of Alstromeria called the Lig2 hybrids, L-I-G-T-U hybrids. And they're actually quite easy to grow from seed. They were the very first alstrom areas that I grew way back in the 1970s. I remember a great stand of them at a, an estate that I worked on for part of the summer there in San Diego, uh, probably 10 or 20 feet long of these alstrom area Lig2 hybrids, blooming away carefree in the Southern California climate, moved up here, forgot all about them, and then alstrom areas became a big thing in the nursery trade. And nowadays you go and you buy a plant and they're not cheap because they're slow to propagate, but they're quite vigorous once they get going in your garden. Very easy to grow. You find a color that you like, splurge a little bit, plant that out in a place, preferably sunny, but shade seems to be fine as well. I have alstromerias all over my property at this point, and they'll increase from year to year and make some of the best cutting flowers around. But getting back to your specific choices, I'm going to start at the end of the alphabet with zinnias, because right now, month of May, beginning of June, is a fantastic time to plant zinnias from seed. You can also buy seedlings in garden centers, but mostly we've gone over to the more dwarf types because they're better garden plants. For cutting, you want the old-fashioned ones. You want the State Fair or the Cut and Come Again or the Envy series. Now, there's a whole lot of them out there. 
And these are the old-fashioned three to four foot tall zinnias that have long enough stems for cutting whose blossoms last for four or five days or more in a bouquet. They love full sun. They're fine in dry climates like ours. Um, the only issue with them generally in the past has been mildew, and that's avoidable by, by watering at the ground level instead of overhead. And it still doesn't, blo- don't, doesn't mar the blossom. So zinnias are a great choice that are very easy to grow from seed, and they're a summer annual. So we wait until the soil is warm and the days are going to be pretty hot. It's time to plant zinnias. Very similar to them in the seed catalogs are asters, or what we call China asters. They're not the perennial aster, but they're a flower that looks a lot like a zinnia, a little bit different color range. Sort of fallen out of favor, but you can still find them in seed catalogs. If you're growing zinnias, you might enjoy growing some asters as well. I mentioned the perennial status, and there's annual forms of status, and I've found them quite easy to grow. You probably should have gotten started on that from seed back in about February indoors because they take a while to get going, but they're not difficult. So perhaps for your cutting garden for next year, you'll want to do from some status from seed. Scabiosa comes in a whole bunch of annual and perennial forms, and they're all easy to grow, and they're all great for cutting. Uh, there's a series that's come on the market that's resistant to mildew, the mist series, blue mist, pink mist, and some that are very similar which are perennial plants, and you can find them in small pots. This is the thing I'm trying to focus. If you don't do it from seed on plants, you can buy in smaller containers uh, so you don't have to pay quite so much as a gallon can or a two-gallon. You can find scabiosa, the perennial types, in four-inch pots and quart pots at a lot of garden centers. It's a long-lasting perennial that blooms nonstop from about March, April, all the way into late fall here in California. And then I would be remiss if I don't mention sunflowers because, well, we think of sunflowers as something we grow for seed for the birds or for the, for the vegetable garden. There's a lot of cutting sunflowers on the market. It's a huge group of hybrids that have come out. That are, some are pollenless, so they make great cut flowers. Some of them are cluster blooming or multi-blooming, and those are great for, uh, very easy to grow, something fun for kids because they sprout readily and will grow rapidly. So they give you quick results. Now is a great time, the month of May, June, all the way into July, you can continue to plant sunflowers. Also a couple to look for, gomfrina, straw flower. Those are both fun for cutting and easy to grow in full sun. There are bulbs we plant now for bloom in the summer. Gladiolus is one and dahlias are another. Easy to grow. You're going to have to buy bulbs or tubers or growing plants in the case of dahlias in some cases. You're going to have to search around for the old-fashioned dahlias, not the dwarf ones. The ones that are going to be big enough to have stems that are long enough for cutting. But they give real bright colors. And of course, gladiolus are great long dramatic spikes. Make a note now for next fall, leave some room for sweet peas, snapdragons, and stock. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show, 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, broadcasting from Davis, California. Thanks for listening.